So, good afternoon, Spark Church. I need more energy. Good afternoon, Spark Church. Thank you, Pastor Marcus. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be invited to come and share what I hope is going to be a good and godly word for all of you. As Josh said, I've been studying at Fuller Seminary for a while. It's been six years. It's been, yeah, I know, I say laugh. I've been spending my last year at Pasadena. And uh, during that time, I, the idea of humility has been a constant. Sometimes people worry that pride or hubris might develop in seminarians because they learn all these esoteric concepts like the theories of atonement or inaugurated eschatology or transubstantiation, which is one of my favorite words in the world. But what often happens is when you think you know it all and you drink a thimble full of knowledge, you realize that there is a Pacific Ocean of knowledge that you will never gain, and it is humbling. At Fuller, Pas- at Fuller Pasadena, I have a fellow student named Elias uh, who is constantly humbling me. And about a week ago, Elias and a group of students were sitting around talking about preaching styles and skills. And Elias, the son of a Pentecostal preacher, offered this. You know, I hate it. When someone goes up to deliver a sermon and they stand behind a podium, or worse, they read from a manuscript, (laughs) shouldn't they have developed and memorized these ideas beforehand? Shouldn't they rely on the Holy Spirit to carry them through? I mean, Mark, doesn't it bother you too? Well, actually, every time I've ever preached, I've been, it's been from a manuscript. And, well, I'm preaching next weekend, and I'll probably be standing behind a podium, and I'll probably be reading from a manuscript. Oh. Well, I'm sure God can use you, and it'll, it'll be fine. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes, right? And uh, I was just witness to one of the greatest lecturing and preaching seminars I've ever been a part of. It was a week-long conference that happened down... Uh, uh, down in Pasadena, and there are a few folks from Spark here that came down to see one of the world's preeminent New Testament theologians, N.T. Wright, a prolific speaker and writer, and one of Danielle and Kevin's theological crushes. <laughs> so who came down to uh, SoCal this weekend? Raise your hands if you were there. They're my people. They're my people. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, can I get from some of you in one word a description of N.T. Wright and what you heard this weekend? How about back there? One word to describe what that experience was like. Mind-boggling. Excellent word. Anybody else that went? Transformational. Awesome. How about one more? Mind-blowing. Oh, mind-boggling and mind-blowing. It was crazy. So in addition to those three, I'd like to add these two words. Humbling and inadequate. Now, I felt inadequate. Uh, I know that God can bless and use anything shared from a pulpit to bless a congregation. And I know that certainly it's not N.T. Wright, but it's God speaking through N.T. Wright that made it so awesome. But still in my mind, it's a tough act to follow. And I know you guys weren't there, but some of you were, and it feels like I'm following N.T. Wright. I'm like, what? How's that possible? So what do I have to draw from today? Well, I got the Holy Spirit, and I also have you. All of you, all y'all are here. So I'm not preaching a sermon this afternoon. We are preaching a sermon this afternoon. I need you all to participate as we preach in this sermon together. This will require you to do some things that you're not used to, like uh, vocal, active vocal participation. So let's warm up, shall we? I want you to sing this song with me. I want you to repeat these words after me, okay? 
la 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 Oh happy day Oh happy day When Jesus washed Okay I was watching Sister Act 2 last night I had to fit that in somehow I'm sorry So please excuse me But I think you guys aren't really into this quite yet so we're going to have to do something a little bit more We're going to have to play a little game Music please there we go. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our fantastic game, Past, Past, and Present. I am Ted Santos, your host, and I would like to bring up two contestants to play our fabulous, wonderful game. First of all, hailing from Los Gatos, California, welcome, Amy! Thank you, ma'am. Stand right over here. And we, I'd also like to welcome a young man hailing from Castro Valley, California, Josiah. Come on down. Thank you, sir. Now, oops, you didn't see that. Here's the game. First of all, we'll have each person in round one answer one question. For each question they get right, they get one point. You guys will not help them. But if you know the answer, please raise your hand, okay? Got it? Okay, here we go. Round one. Miss Amy, this is for you. Who are these people? <laughs> no, oh, if anybody now. knows these people, raise your hand. You can't ask the audience. If you know who these people are, raise your hand. <laughs> Want to give it a shot? No clue. No clue. And the answer is... Not no clue. It is. Say it. Say it. Now, Phineas and Ferb, Lil Wayne, they're really to fit together, but that's okay. Next, Mr. Josiah. I want you to name this musical artist. Okay? Here's the music. Know it, raise your hand if you know the song, if you know who the lyric artist is. Josiah. The Beatles. Survey says Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. I'm sorry, Josiah. So so far we have zero zero. But that's okay, because round two is coming up. It's a chance to double your money. Double zero. Here we go. We're round two. This time, as they see the questions, you guys can act as lifelines. So raise your hand, and Amy can call on you, and you can give her your version of the possible answer. Here we go. Oh, I changed it up a little bit. That's okay. According to the 1985 film masterpiece, The Last Dragon, when I say, who's the master, how should you respond? In the back, in the back, lifeline. <laughs> what do you think? I'm going with it. Show enough? Show enough you're going with it? All right, here we go. 
Am I the meanest? Am I the prettiest? Am I the baddest mofo low down around this town? But who am I? Who am I? I can't hear you. The Shogun of Harlem. Shogun is the master. Here we go. This is my favorite part of the movie. Who's the master? You say. Okay, I have to insert that in the movie. And now you're saying, what does this have to do with Jesus? Hold on! This will make sense in a second. Josiah, you're up. Here's your question. Who created this painting? If you know who created this painting in the audience, raise your hands. Oh, we got one. Can you say that again, please? Velasquez. What do you think? You take it? What she said. Okay. <laughs> Survey says? Rembrandt. Nice guess, though. Nice guess. Okay, let's jump ahead a little bit because you don't need to know who Russell Rockefeller is. Oh, let's go with this one. This will be our final question for today. Now, I'm going to give it to both Amy. Actually, I'm going to give it to the whole audience. If you know the answer to this, go ahead and shout it out. What results when you mix hydrochloric acid with sodium hydroxide? Salt and water. Anybody else? Salt. Survey says you are correct. Now give yourselves a hand. Give yourselves a hand. Okay, I'm going to go with this last one just because I like it. Who is the greatest NBA player ever? Who do you think is the greatest NBA player ever? Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Everybody agree, Michael Jordan? You are wrong! It is Bill Laimbeer! 1989-1990 world champion from the Detroit Pistons. I can't believe it. Okay, you all lose. Thank you so much for joining us. Take a seat. Give him a round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Now, those questions were based on specific time periods. If you grew up during a specific period, you were more likely to know the answers. How many of us knew the answers? Oh, all the na- answers. Raise your hand if you knew all of them. Okay, well, I guess not. So what was the difference between round one and the last round? What was different that, I, that happened in the game? I'm sorry? You interacted. That's right. We were able to help out the other contestants. And this is kind of what I hope to illustrate through that entire mess, that we need to need each other to answer these questions correctly. We need each other to love God and to love our neighbors. We need that diversity that comes from particular experiences and from cultures and skills and gifts. We need all of us to participate, and we need intergenerationality. Now, let's talk about generations for a second. As you see up here, we have six of the living generations. Who here are builders or from the silent generation? Anyone? We're a young congregation, aren't we? Okay. How about folks from, oops, sorry, from the boomer generation? Anybody from the boomer generation? Born? Yeah. Now, according to this book I have here, you guys are idealists. Ah. You have high standards for yourselves and others. Ministry must be done well. 
You have values. You're value-driven and moralistic, which sometimes make it, makes it easier for you to focus on the law and Scripture rather than the gospel. But you love contemporary worship formats, and you believe that contemporary music will keep younger generations in church. Maybe. Next we have the next, uh, the next generation, the Gen Xers. Who's a Gen Xer? Raise your hand. Yeah, so, so excited about your generation. That's awesome. <laughs> Gener- generation X folks are reactive. They just do it. They love, yeah, fist bump. They love to serve, and they'll jump in if they believe a mission project will, will make a difference. They tend to blend modern technology, which has been breaking for us today, but why not, and artistic design and ancient worship practices to provide a multi-sensory and participatory experience. Now, who here is a millennial? Nice. Millennials, you are doers. You are community and team-oriented. You are service-oriented with both a local and global perspective. And your positive relationship with elders and openness to diversity enables your churches to embrace a wide variety of worship practices and styles in such a way that all ages and cultures might worship and build community together. So let me jump back. I don't know how far I can jump back. No, I can't. I can't go back to Bill Beer. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we need intergenerationality. First of all, it's biblically modeled. And to prove it to you, we're going to look at a series of verses that are no, by, by no means comprehensive. But it will get the point across that interaction between generations— is something that God wants. If you have a Bible, please pull it out right now. And if you don't, then raise your hand and hopefully someone will deliver one to you. <laughs> but if you do have a Bible, pull it out. And open to Genesis 12, verse 1. And the person I have given, sir, could you please read out Genesis 12 with a loud and powerful voice? Thank you, sir. So we have God calling upon one person, one person, Abram, to take part in something special, to do something through which Abram would become Abraham, the father of many nations, through whose descendants would number more than the stars in the sky and through whom the entire world would be blessed. So after Abram hears this word from God, does he pack all his stuff up, say goodbye to his family, and head off alone? More energy! Yes or no? No, he does not. He takes his wife. He takes his entire household. He takes his nephew's household with him. God calls upon one person, but that one person does not walk alone. God has given Abram a community to walk with him, young and old, and to be part of the blessing. Now let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 10 to 13. That's Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 10 to 13. And who has this verse? Sir, if you would.
Thank you, Mr. John. This describes an act of worship taking place during the Festival of Shelters, also known as the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And who is present during this worship? Men and women and children and foreigners. They're all called together so they may hear and learn to fear the Lord and to take part in covenant with him. Not just the young, not just the old. Everybody is called to take part in the covenant. Now, let's move from the Torah and jump into the New Testament, which you guys haven't done in a while, but we're doing it today. Ephesians chapter 4, turn to that, verses 15 and 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It was the old slideshow. Now, who has Ephesians? Sir, if you would, please. Thank you so much. The family of God, the body of Christ, is not a collection of individuals doing each their own thing. It's a network. It's a body fit together perfectly by Jesus. Each part does its work. And when that work comes together, God can grow the entire community holistically in mind, body, and spirit. And so who is in the body? This is our very last verse for today. Please turn to Acts 16, verses 29 to 34. Acts 16, verses 29 to 34. And who has that passage? Mr. Andy, if you would. Thank you, Mr. Andy. So, who is in the body in this family? It's not just the jailer who first believed in Jesus. It's the entire household that joined the family of God and sealed their covenant to follow Jesus through baptism. Now, let's jump ahead. I'd love to tell that story, but we're running out of time. This is our verse for today. I know I should have brought this up earlier, but kind of ran out of time. This verse is part of an awesome passage in Hebrews 12, that talks about many of the things that are going on during this time in the life of the church. And if I can find the slide, I can't find the slide. There it is. Okay. I've been studying Hebrews for the past couple of weeks because I've been forced to be at school, <laughs> but it's been fun. I could talk about the preceding chapter that talks about all the people of Scripture that preceded us, our ancestors of faith and their trust and reliance on God. I could talk about the following verses of Hebrews 12, which also talk about how this writer— encourages this group of first-century Jesus followers that the persecution that they suffered is nothing compared to what Jesus experienced and that the suffering from persecution for their faith is actually a sign of their status as God's beloved children. I can share all this kind of stuff, right? But for today, I want you to focus on two things. Let me read it real quick. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So, 
What is the metaphor being used in this passage? Hints? Say it. Running. Running the race. That's exactly right. Now, who is running the race? We are. Not you, not you, not you, not you. We are running the race. We don't run the race alone. We run it together. Now, let's look at like another passage from Paul in comparison. And let me read this as well. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Who here is a word nerd or a grammar geek? Raise your hand. Word nerds, grammar geeks? Okay, here we go. Who is running the race in the first paragraph? What does it say? What does it say? Does it say all of us? It says you, right? Here's the problem is that we sometimes look at you and we think first person or second person singular, you. You, you, you. Actually, this is actually plural. He's meaning you all, referring to you all. We're all running the race. He's referring to the entire church of Corinth. But in the second paragraph, who's running the race? Who? No? I. Who's I in, in, in this? Who's actually sending out this letter? It's Paul. Paul is running the race. He says I, and he's setting himself up as the example for everyone to follow. Hence the I. But because of the I, we may get the idea that we're running the race for ourselves. Because of our contemporary perspective, it leaks into our understanding of running the race. Run so you may obtain the price. You run the race so you may obtain the price. You run the race so you may obtain the price. But here's the thing. We're not in competition with each other. Paul's intent is to say if we don't run this race of life for Christ under control and with purpose, we may find ourselves ruining our relationship with him. I'm not racing you or you or you or you. I'm racing alongside you. That's why Paul's preaching, to equip his running partners with what they need to stay in the race. This is not what Paul meant when he said to run the race. Nor this, and definitely not this. This is Chris Lee. He's running the Ironman Triathlon in Kona. And after 2.4 miles of swimming, 112 miles of cycling, and close to 26 miles of running, he's in pretty bad shape. And notice there's a crowd of witnesses, a cloud of witnesses cheering him on, but no one's helping him. There are no runners alongside him to run with him. And so now he's calling. You're missing a little bit of dry heaving there, but he's still trying to make it. I think he's in third place at this point. And he's trying to make it to the end. And as we see him fall and stumble, in a second, you'll see another runner coming by on his left. And you'll also see some people with cameras go, with a little bit of shot in front and go, look, look, I'll take a picture of you and Payne. This is awesome. It's very, very strange. But here comes the other runner. And he runs, and he runs, and he looks, and he says, oh, sucks for you. And he keeps on running. 
That is not what, the, what running the race looks like. It looks like this. When we're tied together, we run the race together. We support one another. And if you fall, we all fall. And sometimes running together can look like this. Or this. Or my favorite, this. But it's all about running together with a defining goal. So why intergenerationality? Why do we need to be together in community in our church? Because it can help build our faith with emphasis on the hour. The Search Institute con- conducted a study of Christian communities and intergenerationality, and here are some of the conclusions. Cross-generational contact can build positive and mutual respect between the generations. People recognize how much someone of another generation has to offer, and they can become less afraid of each other. You know, sometimes you don't realize what you have until it's in front of you. And even then, you can't tell that it's there. Sometimes you just don't know until you know. I was part of a young adult group once, and I would hear these young adults talking about how much they needed help in navigating the Christian life. And they couldn't find the wisdom that they needed in the church, and they felt that no one understood. And meeting downstairs at the same exact time was a seniors group with all the wisdom in the world to share about navigating the Christian life and the feeling that no one understands. Mutual needs could have been met, but because those two groups didn't know each other and they didn't know about each other, they didn't realize what they could share with one another. Second point, intergenerational education is a way to build shared experiences for youth and parents, which can open doors for formal and informal conversations outside of church. Now, if we study different things at church when we split up and we go into our youth ministry or we go into this or we go into that, when the time comes to get back together, we haven't been talking about the same thing. It's really hard to discuss the same thing when we're not talking about the same thing, when we haven't learned it together. So it is an important thing for parents and kids to be on the same page so that when they spend life together outside of Sundays, they can work on things together. They can talk about certain subjects. They can see how does this life, how does this Bible connect to what I'm doing in my life? Intergenerationality provides faith support for all ages as well as practical support for the community. Uh, here we go. And let me jump to the next one, actually. Uh, adult minds. Adult minds can become open to new ideas because sometimes as adults, we get things stuck in our heads with expectations of where wisdom should come from so they don't even bother to look or they reject it because of its source. And when I was in children's ministry, leading small groups, sometimes a child would bring up a new, brilliant perspective on a, on a scripture. And one of two things would happen. Either the adult leader would ignore the comment or give it lip service or move on with his agenda, or that leader would say, huh, I've never thought about it that way. What do you guys think? And all of a sudden you had teach, uh, kids teaching an adult something new about God. God doesn't start using you to bless others when you become eligible to vote. He starts right now. Now let me jump back a little bit to the other, uh, other point of faith support. Um, the walk of faith is a difficult one. And we can use running partners when we deal with the loss of a loved one, or divorce, or unemployment, or abuse in our lives. We heard we need someone that has gone through what we're going through 
because they can be there for us and understand and know what we're going through. Well, what's in the Bible? And lastly, intergenerationality builds for everyone. People, what the heck? Anyways, it talks about sense of community in the congregation. And as youth and everyone else get to know people of all ages, they may feel more comfortable in the church and more like a member of the family of God. It creates a we instead of an us versus them attitude. And contact with older adults is more likely to give younger people mentors with mature faith. That is a little house. That's the village to remind me. It takes a village and many other things to raise a child or an adult in the life of Christ. Now, let's talk about how this works. Sorry, these slides got a little messed up when we were doing uh, some changes, so I'm a little bit off. But let me just talk about this. This is the church community. One big, giant happy family. We're all together. We're all worshiping together, no matter what our age or difference or whatever's going on. We're all together one big group. And as we get bigger, we start to say, well, we have these kids, and they're awesome. And maybe we can teach them something different. Maybe it takes something a little more to teach them. Maybe, as the room gets more crowded, we start to think that they need specialized teaching that's contextual and exciting and yada, 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 yada. Because of our historical experience with education and business practices, we think that specialization is good. It happens in manufacturing, it happens in administration, and so forth. It's more productive for us to specialize. But what we don't realize is that we can't simply map what works for the world onto his church community. What is best for cognitive learning is not always what's best for spiritual learning. And let's be honest, we also think, I kind of want to hear a sermon with minimal distraction. So we say, let's get the kids out and doing something else. So we created children's ministry to support that. But since the children's ministry has different goals than the rest of the church, it becomes isolated. It becomes only tangentially connected to the larger life of the community. This is called a one-eared Mickey Mouse. But since we like specialization, we go on to create a youth ministry with all the bells and whistles that excite that generation. And what we end up intentionally, unintentionally communicating to those youth is, number one, this is what your church should look like. Not ours, your church should look like this. And we also unintentionally communicate that when you grow older, Your church should cater to you. And if it doesn't, leave it and find one that does. Church doesn't become community anymore. It's about consumption. And this mindset begins to spread. And soon we have adult fellowships. We have women's fellowship. We have women's fellowship. We have senior fellowship. We have young adults. We have worship arts. We have small groups. And at my old church, we had an Irish ministry and a Filipino ministry and a Hispanic ministry and an Italian ministry. All of them are tangentially connected to the main body, but each one has self-centered goals. Goodbye, one-eared Mickey Mouse. Hello, weird octopus thingy. So people within them think of what is good for the people in my ministry. Because what's good for the entire community might require my individual ministry to sacrifice some of its plans and its resources, and now I'm competing with everybody else in my church. We've become a series of silos unaware of each other's needs, without one common unifying goal, and without one narrative. The concerns are always justified, but sometimes we need to abandon what is good 
for what is better for all of us. And let me jump ahead a little bit. Let's talk about this. What this opens up us up to are very quiet heresies within our church. We share a reduced gospel without realizing it. We talk of a gospel of grace, not law, and the whole gospel becomes an individualized John 3.16. God, Jesus died for my sins so that I could go to heaven. The rest of the Bible, including Jesus' teachings, all goes to the wayside. We forget about the relationship with God and the community and how we're called to love one another. The fact is, the gospel only references the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins a few times. What Jesus constantly talks about is the kingdom of heaven being at hand. What God wants to, when God wants to come down and take possession of his world and restore it to its original purpose, and he wants us to participate in this, Jesus died for my sins doesn't cut it anymore. Don't get me wrong. That is a major part of what God did, but it's far from the only thing. And second, we have this very strange moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, it sounds a little strange. But according to two Christian sociologists, it is, in the context of congregations and denominations, actively displacing the substantive traditional faiths of conservative, black, and mainstream Protestantism, Catholicism, and Judaism in the United States. It may be the new mainstream American religious faith for our culturally post-Christian, individualistic, mass-consumer, capitalist society. Now, if you take a look at me with this, it says, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. That's deism. That's a great thing. It's, a, it's true, but it's only part of the truth. Number two, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most religions. That is moralistic. That's what we're called to do. We follow these morals, but they're not necessarily linked to Jesus. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That is therapeutic. Number four, God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem. That is deist. God does not want to be in my everyday life. He just wants to be a part of it at the end. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. So we have a church that is divided within itself, fighting for resources, and we have two perspectives that are infiltrating the church and watering down God's purpose for all of us, individually and collectively. Now that I've depressed all of you, <laughs> is our church going down the toilet? No, it's not. <laughs> if you didn't know, the answer is no. Because when there's God's will, there's a way. If a church can get out of its own head, And remember what goal, what narrative defines its purpose. The kingdom of God is here, and it's on its way. How do we join in on its construction? If we remember that, we can help God construct a church that is both unified and still embraces the diversity within it. For example, we switch from these silos to joining together where we're all still unique in our groups, but we also focus on what's important to our community, the entire community, not just to our particular silo or a particular group. And we can also protect ourselves by sharing the full gospel, not just the part of it, not just the one, what makes kids feel great or what makes us feel good about it. We need to share the entire gospel with people. So let's do some potty training really quickly. I need a volunteer. 
To read, to read, to read. I need, I need a volunteer to read. Come on up, real quick, real quick. Come on up, you, with the glasses. Give him a round of applause, folks. We're almost done. What are we supposed to do with this gun? Read it. Here we go. Her first son, David, was an immediate... Do a normal voice. No, you said to do a dramatic... Okay, fine, fine, all right. Fine. Body training, their first son, David, was an immediate process for Holly. I'll do it, okay. Read it straight, read it straight. After locating a popular book on the subject, creating a chart and for stickers and, pur- for, and purchasing small treats as rewards, they began the arduous pos- process months later. They were still slogging through. When it came time to train their second son, Timmy, son Timmy, they reluctantly dug out the book, bleakly sought courage to tackle the task, and generally dreaded the ordeal. <clears throat> One day, as Holly walked into the laundry room slash bathroom with, load of, with, load, with a load of clothes, she came upon David, demonstrating to a very intent younger brother the basic technique of aiming straight. David had pulled up a small stool for his little brother to stand on, and Timmy was well on his way to proficiency. Thank you. Give Alex a big round of applause, thing, please. In summary, this happened. We have, welcome to the Sociocultural Learning Theory by Lev Vygotsky. We have the zone of actual development and the zone of potential development. This is where he was. He doesn't know how to use the bathroom. This is where he wants to be, to use the bathroom on his own. How does he need to get there? He needs to go through the zone of proximal development. He needs someone to mentor him through this. And often the best person to mentor someone through a new situation is the person who just went through the process. That's why David, his, the, the older brother, was so important. Because not only did he want to help his little brother, he got the opportunity to share this novel information with this new person. This is mentorship. And if it works for toilet training, do you think it could work for Christian discipleship? So, why intergenerationality? It's how we are created to grow. This is going to be my very last point. Deuteronomy. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that you may go go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gates, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. But those who enter by it are many. Next one, John 4, 6, 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And lastly, 1 Corinthians. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I need three people to stand up. This is the very last thing I'm going to do. Josiah, please come on over. Anyone? Anyone? Thank you. Ms. Pam? Awesome. Okay. This is the way of Jesus. Oh, let's start from there. <laughs> You're right. This is the way of Jesus. Miss Pam, you're Jesus. Give Jesus a big round of applause. And we walk the path with him. Come on over. Hey, we're following Jesus. Come on. So as we walk the path, sometimes we can lose our balance and fall off through sin, through idolatry, through whatever. Ugh, I'm down. 
Your response is not to say, ah, sucks to be you. (laughs) Your response is to help that person to get back on the path and then walk alongside them. This is the summary. As we move forward, as we're looking to Jesus as perfecter and founder of our faith, please keep walking. Ms. Pam, go ahead. As we look forward, we also look behind us and we look to the people right in front of us because we're here to support each other. This entire church, this entire ministry, everything we do here is for one another and for God. We can't just say, well, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. Let me just keep silent about it and not tell anybody because I don't want to be embarrassed and shameful. We need to be able to say, I'm going to develop trust in this young man. And I'm going to tell him, I'm struggling with this and I need your prayers and I need your support. And I need you to talk to me every once in a while just to encourage me. Can you do that? Thank you. And that is our sermon for today. Thank you for taking part in today's sermon. As crazy as it was.